Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, folks. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I am your host, Earl Breon, and my guest today is Dr. Christopher Kalinda. Dr. Kalinda, thanks for being with us today. It's a delight being here, Earl. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is going to be a fantastic discussion. I've been giddy about this ever since we booked it. And uh, listeners, when you hear uh, Chris's bio here, you're going to understand why, because we sing in harmony on a lot of things, uh, but he's going to take it to a whole other level than, than I think that I ever could, because he is the founder of the Strategic Leaders Academy, works with leaders who want to apply insights from history and military operations to transform their businesses. So you can see right there how we're kind of in lockstep. Uh, he's a West Point graduate, recognized combat leaner, and retired Army colonel. He defied conventional wisdom and if he divide this is the part where I'm a professional speaker here. He defied conventional wisdom in Afghanistan by motivating a large insurgent group. You read that right, insurgent group to switch sides. The only example of success in the 20-year history of the war. As a trusted advisor to three four-star generals and two undersecretaries of defense. He became the first American to have both fought the Taliban as a commander in combat and negotiated with them in peace talks. He holds a Ph.D. in war studies from King's College in London and is the author of Zero Sum Victory, What We're Getting Wrong About War, and the book we're going to use for a lot of backdrop for our conversation today, Leadership, the Warrior's Art, which is a trusted anthology that's been in print for over 20 years and help tens of thousands of leaders succeed in combat and business. And with all of that, I'm just sitting over here with bated breath to hear how you answer the first question I start off all of my guests with. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? Thank you for that very kind introduction, um, Earl. The uh, responsible leadership to, to me means three things. The first thing it means um, a duty towards. Um, and so f- when you are a leader um, who has responsible, you have responsibility, you have a duty towards your mission, towards your people, to the values and expectations. Um, you also are second, you are responsible to be an exemplar, to model uh, those, those behaviors, uh, to model those values and expectations, um, be able to look at people and say, Hey, do it just like me. The rules apply to me just like they apply to you. 
And, and third, responsible to me means that you are responsible. Um, so you are responsible for everything that happens and fails to happen in your organization uh, with, your, with your team. Um, it doesn't mean you are to blame. It doesn't mean you are at fault. It means you are responsible, that you are able to respond when things go well, when things go poorly, and you are able to generate a, an appropriate response that, um, that, that makes things uh, better, that, that set th- sets things right, that takes you to new heights. So, so I see it in, in, uh, in those three ways. Yeah, no, that is a great answer. And it's, it's the last one was very interesting to me because I had somebody uh, a few episodes back bake that same kind of breakdown of the word uh, responsible, the response able, being able to respond. And, and, uh, you know, I think that is, that is a very key way of looking at it that I didn't think of until, you know, they mentioned it. Um, And then to hear you kind of reinforce it there, I I really like that. And I hope that kind of uh, drives the point home because it, it is true. I mean, you have to be able to respond. And I like the fact that you added appropriately because I think uh, we, we've all heard horror stories of, of people in leadership positions who have responded with terrible responses and, and made things worse. I bet you probably got a uh, hundred stories like that, huh? Yeah, well, you know, a classic example, and you're a you're a fan of history. Uh, so, a classic example, of course, is uh, is is George Patton in Sicily, mm-hmm. where I mean, he would Patton was stressed out, so Patton was doing things that were, um, he had to deal with allies, he had to deal with politics, so he was sort of outside of his element. You know, Patton was best when he could just focus on the military operations. Um, so Sicily was very intense battle, uh, lasted about, is like a month of just continuous fighting, lots of casualties and, and, and then Patton's in this, in this situation where, um, he, it's, it's not ideally suited for him and, and he's doing his duty as a, his responsibility as a commander visiting wounded soldiers in the hospitals. Patton was always really good about that. Um, but what he didn't quite get was um, people have what they called, you know, battle fatigue back then. We call it uh, post-traumatic stress now. And he saw a soldier exhibiting signs of post-traumatic stress and Patton slapped him. So he assaulted, he, a three-star general, assaulted a private um, and, and he got fired for it. So it's, you know, it, it's an example of an inappropriate response. Patton was stressed out. He took the stress out on, uh, you know, on, on one of his most junior, most vulnerable employees. And he rightly got sacked for it. And he sat on the bench for a year. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and that's, that's great that you went there. I've, I've talked about that story on here before and, and, uh, it is, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where the, I think most people don't really grasp the the gravity of that situation because as you pointed out, yes, rightfully so he got sacked, but it almost really, at that point, it didn't matter if he had got sacked or not. He lost the trust of those underneath him when he slapped that kid, right? Right. If, if you talk to a uh, soldier in the first infantry division in World War II, uh, they're not big Patton fans. 
because uh, you know Patton did some things um, around the first infantry that just were not very appropriate. Um, and and after Eisenhower sacked him and put him on the bench for a year, you know Patton did some introspection in that time, and he of course took accountability, took responsibility for his actions. Um, the I also thought Eisenhower is very interesting in this, in that he he understood himself. He he was self aware enough to know that he had not set Patton up for success. That Patton was just not he was not a good fit, um, getting above the sort of military operations level. So don't make him deal with allies. Don't make him deal with politics. Just point him in the right direction. You know, put uh, you know put somebody over top of him. Um, and just let him focus on the military operations. So after the D-Day landings, where Eisenhower very deftly used Patton as a decoy uh, during uh, D-Day, afterwards he put Patton in charge of Third Army, and that's where Patton had all of his biggest victories. And so if you're somebody who served with Patton in the Third Army and those operations in you know France, Belgium, and Germany, um, you thought the world of George Patton. Yeah. And that was my grandfather. So, so my grandfather was, uh, you know, did stuff with, uh, third infantry in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he spoke, like you just said, he spoke very fondly of Patton. Uh, as soon as the, the movie came out, we had to watch the movie and all that good stuff. Cause he, yeah. And, and it was interesting because, you know, up until getting older and, and learning a little bit more about history, that was the image I had of Patton was, was the third army, uh, vision. And then, Going into to the Marine Corps myself, and then learning about uh, you know Chesty Puller and some of the things he did. He didn't have a lot of you know. I mean, he had his issues as well. But one of the stories they always told us there was was um, why the troops loved him was because he he really reached down to the lowest enlisted folks. And there was a story that um, uh, I can't remember which island they were on at the time, but he is out walking the perimeter, you know, I think he was maybe on his first, maybe second star at the time. Mm. Uh, he's walking the perimeter and he comes up on a fighting hole and, and he sees a Marine asleep, right? Very egregious offense. And the way the story goes is he hops into the fighting hole with the guy and like, you know, wakes him up, you know, shakes him awake. And he, <laughs> here's the general, right? And he tells his private, he goes, good God, private, why did you fall asleep? If your captain had to caught you, I'd have to court-martial you. <laughs> you know, and it was like, I'm the general, right? And I'm trying to protect you from the captain, right? So it was just, but you know, it's those leadership positions, right? And that kind of the the military, you can see through these stories that travel down through history, the military leaders who get it, and and kind of you know, we don't really talk about the ones who don't, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, you, you've got all, all kinds. And, and I think it's always very important, like with any, any sort of history is, is, yeah, you've got to be very careful, uh, to separate the mythology from, from the facts and, uh, and, and make sure we learn from the, you know, from the, from the story, um, so to speak, and, and then be able to draw bigger lessons. So I mentioned earlier, um, exemplar, and you know, we had a you know one example of Patton as a poor exemplar on one hand, a very good exemplar on the other. Chesty Puller as a as an exemplar. Um, if you go to 
World War II or not World War II. If you go to Civil War battlefields, so you go to Gettysburg, Antietam, um, Shiloh, you'll see leaders on horseback, statues of leaders on horseback. Um, and do you know why leaders rode horses during those, uh, during those battles? Um, well, I mean, I've heard a couple of different ideas, but basically it's to, to stay prominent, to stay visible, uh, to be up front and lead from a visible perspective, right? Yeah. So exactly. So part of it is you can see a little bit better when you're, when you're up higher, uh, naturally, um, but you know, it wasn't because you were privileged. You know, Tabe might say that, oh, these, you know, these they were privileged. They were the rich ones. They were they were lazy, too lazy to walk. Um, it wasn't about that. It was about you could see a little bit better. Uh, but more importantly, it was uh, because you were the most vulnerable person on the battlefield, mm-hmm. and everybody is shooting at you because you're the most prominent target. And the idea was that if I can sit on this horse and I can do my job and I can stand my ground, so can everybody else. Um, in ancient battles, the leader was on the front right. So you've got a phalanx on your website. So in the phalanx, the leader was always a front right. Yep. And you know the reason why is because you're the most vulnerable person when you're in a shield wall you have the shield on your left hand and your spear, your sword in your right hand. And, and so your shield is half protecting you and half protecting the person to your left. Well, if you're on the front, right, nobody's shield is protecting you. So you are once again, the most vulnerable person in the formation. And, and you're the exemplar. You're saying, if I can stand my ground and I can fight as the most exposed person in the battlefield, then so can everybody else. And, and for me, the, the lesson is that, you know, about leaders uh, needing to set the example. How often do we see leaders where, you know, th- there's one set of standards that applies to everybody else and a different one that applies to the leaders? Or how often do we see leaders who will, you know, throw their subordinates under the bus and, uh, you know, not take the... Uh, you know, not take the tough calls, not take the responsibility, um, and then be responsible for, uh, you know, for fixing things. So, you know, some of those examples, I think, historical examples, it can be very helpful um, as, you know, we look ourselves in the mirror and say, you know, how well am I setting the example? Yeah. No, I think that is an extremely valuable point. And it's one, um, I heard Simon Sinek put it put it beautifully. Uh, he was talking about um, you know leadership and the responsibilities of leadership, but also you know kind of you alluded to there in the beginning, you know having you know maybe some extra benefits, right? And he he would talk about how you know in in caveman days, you know you wanted the leader to you know get the extra piece of meat because they were the stronger person, and you wanted them to be more fit and more able to respond. And, you know, then he, you know, segued into modern times and, and he made a, what I thought was a very brilliant connection, because I think it's true that, that we don't get upset with leaders when they have the perks and, and the benefits and those sorts of things, you know, the executive lounge and all that kind of good stuff, as long as they're taking care of us. 
it's when they have the golden parachutes and, and, you know, the, the executive dining halls and things like that, but they sacrifice the people following them that the people get upset because, you know, kind of naturally we want our leaders to be taken care of, to, to have a little bit more advantage, if you will, so they can better take care of us. It's when we don't fulfill that, that responsibility of taking care of those under us that it causes issues, right? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe take it a little bit different direction. And, uh, you know, it's the oxygen mask principle. Yeah. Uh, where you've got to put on your oxygen mask first before you try to apply it to other people. And and so, you know, leaders, you know, leaders have to obey the oxygen mask principle. Um, you have got to have enough self-care that you can do your job um, durably, you know, not, uh, you do your job for 48 or 96 hours and then you completely flame out because you've been, you've been up all day or, um, you know, do your job for 12 hours, but because you forgot to eat, you know, you, uh, you know, you face plant. So nobody, nobody wants that. Um, so leaders have got to be able to, to take care of, of themselves They've got to have sufficient self-care that they can continue doing their, their jobs to, you know, to the right standard. Um, I don't necessarily believe that that means that, um, you know, leaders should, uh, you know, should be, you know, sort of privileged or have, um, you know, have, uh, you know, lavish circumstances where other people are, are, are toiling away. Um, I think when you, the, the more that the longer, the broader that you create these um, unequal circumstances, um, they can also have some very, very bad effects. So, um, you know, is it, is it right for a leader to have a, have a car and driver so they can do their, do their work while they're being driven from point A to point B? That makes sense to me. Right. Um, you know, should, uh, you know, should they, they do that in a gold plated carriage? Um, yeah, that's, that's probably a bit excessive. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I agree. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I, uh, yeah. And, and I like that oxygen mask. I mean, it, it's, it's been used so much. It's almost cliche now, but I think that's the thing with cliches, right? I mean, they, they become cliche because they're true. You may get tired of hearing them, but they're still true nonetheless. Um, yeah. And, and I kind of wanted to go back a second here. Cause I think you, you make a brilliant distinction, um, and, and this is kind of where I was, uh, uh, why I thought about the Chesty Puller story that, that I brought up earlier, but you make this great distinction about what discipline is and what it's not. So why don't you share that with us for, for a second? Yeah, there's, um, so discipline to me, intrinsic discipline is when somebody knows the difference between right and wrong and they do what's right voluntarily. Um, that's what discipline's all about. Um, so there, there are two kinds of discipline. There is intrinsic discipline, which I just described. And then there's extrinsic discipline, which is your carrots and sticks. It's discipline imposed from, um, from outside. So uh, organizations in which people have high levels of intrinsic discipline um, are the ones that uh, that are going to be able to grow sustainably, whereas the ones that rely on extrinsic discipline um, are always going to top out. 
So if you uh, do a, imagine a quad chart, you know, a, a double axis chart. So the north-south axis is uh, clarity and the east-west axis is buy-in. So clarity means clarity about your organization's common good. Could be your mission and vision, your goals and values, your standards and expectations. Uh, things that we want people to, um, you know, to follow, to, uh, to advance. And then the east-west axis is buy-in. Uh, to what extent are people following those standards, obeying those, um, you know, exemplifying those values, advancing the mission voluntarily? Uh, versus lack of buy-in would require uh, then carrots and sticks. So this double axis chart creates four kinds of organizational cultures. The, the top left, where you have high levels of clarity but low levels of buy-in, is a compliance culture. So a compliance culture is characterized by leaders in constant supervision mode because there's such low levels of buy-in leaders have to spend all of their time making sure people are doing their jobs, making sure people are following the values and standards and expectations. But what they're not doing while they're spending all of their time supervising is they can't think about strategy and growth um, for their organization. So, a military basic training company is a good example of a compliance culture, but a lot of businesses are compliance cultures because their leaders are just so focused on supervision uh, and, and, and none of them are growing. Um, and, and so these organizations become at high risk of, of um, you know, of, of eventually imploding. Um, or, uh, or achieving catastrophic growth where they grow beyond their ability to manage it. And, uh, and, then, they, and then they fail, kind of like WeWork. Um, yeah. On the bottom left is a chaotic culture. So this is a culture where there's low clarity about what's important and, and no buy-in. And this chaotic culture is where you get a bunch of fiefdoms. So inevitably, somebody's going to fill the power vacuum that's left in the office alphas in a chaotic culture, the ones that rule the roost and they are doing things to advance their own self-interest, but not necessarily the interests of the organization. So you're going to get a lot of silos. You're going to get a lot of fiefdoms and a lot of very uh, toxic behavior on the lower right, where you've got low clarity, but high buy-in you've got a contingent culture. I see this in small businesses all the time where you've got a group of founders or partners that have known each other for a really, really long time. And they have just this implicit understanding of all these common good items, this implicit understanding of the, where the organization's going and its values and expectations. And it works perfectly fine until you try to get to grow or scale the business or until you have to, uh, replace some of the original founders. Uh, because what happens when you try to grow, uh, grow by acquisition or uh, start adding more people is because you don't have the clarity, um, that implicit understanding begins to, to water down, begins to atrophy. And suddenly you get pulled inevitably towards this chaotic culture because you're going to have everybody interpreting things 
that uh, just suits their own interest. So when you try to add more people or you lose some of these original members have to replace them with people without that same implicit understanding, um, things start to drift downhill. Where you want to be, of course, is in the upper right, where uh, there's high levels of clarity about your organization's common good and people buy in. Uh, so they are doing the right things voluntarily without the leaders having to watch. And when that happens, leaders can focus on strategy. They can focus on growth. They can focus on developing the organization. And that's how you grow sustainably. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I love that breakdown. And and it highlights, again, another reason why I wanted to start this uh, this podcast was you know, kind of what you were talking about there that uh, I started hearing a lot of people. So the original title of this podcast was Burden of Command, and I had to kind of rebrand after talking to some SEO folks. But mm. I started hearing some of that language that you were talking about there about, uh, you know, military terms being used in, in you know, civilian leadership roles. And, and I noticed that everybody kind of gravitated towards that kind of boot camp stylized version of uh, of Hollywood military leadership you right. know, yelling screaming just giving orders and everybody you know complying without thinking about any of the consequences and a lot of people are shocked to find out that what you just said that upper right uh, quadrant there is really where where the military lies uh, well, most where the, the, yeah I think where the best units are right um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so thank you for that, because, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we we have units that even in the fleet, as we call it in the Marines, that are still kind of command and control, no free thinking. But, yeah, the best units uh, and I think General Stanley McChrystal was probably fairly, fairly good and has made a, a, a good uh, career post-military talking about operating in those environments. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, I, I love that. I love that breakdown. And uh, I think we'll dive into that a little bit more on the other side of the commercial break here. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and go to commercials, and then we'll be right back uh, with Dr. Chris Kalinda. All right, folks, here we are uh, back in this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast with Dr. Chris Kalinda. Uh, just before the break, we were talking about his uh, the quadrant layout there and, and where uh, most successful organizations uh, really lie or, or should lie. Um, but I, I, gotta, I want to kind of segue a little bit away from that, if you, if you don't mind, because I have to ask, and I got to hear this story here because I think it ties in mm-hmm. with a lot of what we were just talking about here. But in the bio, uh, it talks about how you were able to turn a group of insurgents uh, to to our side, so to speak. Um, how much of that story can you share, and what can you tell us about it? Yeah, I could share uh, quite a <laughs> quite a bit about it. Um, you know, without getting too nerdy on the you know, on the details, but when, when we came into this uh, area in Eastern Afghanistan in the summer of 2007 is one of the deadliest areas of the country. And, um, we had a lot of hard fighting the first sort of 90 days and, you know, lost, uh, lost four of our troopers 
um, you know, during that fighting. And in one particular battle on July 27th of 2007, uh, we lost uh, one of our troop commanders, uh, Major Tom Bostick and, and a, a Staff Sergeant Ryan Fritchie. Biggest firefight we ever had. Um, and, you know, on that day, or as we were analyzing the battle afterwards, we recognized that, you know, everything that we had assumed about that area that we had been told was the case was absolutely wrong. Hmm. Uh, you know, we had believed that the insurgents were primarily from Pakistan that, uh, you know, when the snows would melt, they'd come over and, you know, attack us, attack the people, attack the government. And when the snow started falling again in the mountain passes, they would go back to Pakistan and, and refit. Uh, we, you know, um, had assumed that the people were on the side of the government, that the government was operating in the best interest of the people. And none of that was true. <laughs> in fact, it was, it was the opposite. Uh, where 95% of the people that we thought we were helping were actually trying to kill us. And the government was not uh, operating in the best interests of the people. It was uh, predatory and corrupt and the people were fighting against it and us um, by extension. And, and so we recognize that if the insurgency is primarily local, we got to figure out, all right, well, why are, why are most people fighting and, and then see what we can do with that. And, and, and so as we began to gather the data, so to speak, a lot of the, I mean, we noticed that most of the issues, why people were fighting were actually fairly practical reasons. Um, yeah, there'd been civilian casualties in the area, government corruption, um, the belief that we were there to, you know, conquer the country and tell people how to live their lives and, and, you know, all of, all of these different, different, uh, beliefs. And it created this sort of cocktail of, uh, of violence. Um, and, and just being in the mountains there, it just, it was absolutely deadly, um, because of the terrain. And, and so once we, once we kind of figured that out, um, then it was pretty qu quickly came to the conclusion that, well, just running around with the hair on fire, chasing insurgents through the mountains was, was not going to do anything to improve the situation in the area. In fact, it's just going to make it worse. And, and so we also thought, well, you know what? Um, it is, you make a lot more progress when you build bridges to other people than when you build walls. And so we needed to be able to see ourselves through Afghan eyes, uh, empathy, and be able to determine ways that we could work together on common objectives. So I didn't expect any of the Afghans were going to want a foreign military presence in their, in their area, in their communities. I, I don't know if you would like a foreign military presence in your neighborhood. I don't think I'd want one in mine. Um, so so we had to figure out ways that we could work together to achieve common objectives, you know, so that at least people weren't attacking us and, and the government and, and the more buy-in that uh, people had because they saw that um, 
their interests were being advanced, the more likely it was, we believed, that people would just simply stop fighting um, because there was no no point in doing so. Uh, And in fact, it was just, it would just be uh, contrary to the, you know, what the, what the people in the community wanted. And, and, and so, you know, a lot of Afghans helped us kind of figure this out and, um, and it worked. Um, it, uh, it motivated a large insurgent group to, to stop fighting. Uh, they switched sides and they, they were fighting the Taliban, uh, right up until the, the very end in 2021. So we're, we're pretty proud of that. And, um, but it, you know, it's all about, you know, starting with empathy, um, and working together with people who don't necessarily agree with you, but figuring out ways to find common ground, um, and, and, uh, advance, uh, things that worked well for both parties. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that story. And, um, you know, there's so many leadership, uh, pearls in that. I mean, because, you know, tying that bank into the quadrants before the, uh, before the break, you know, there, there was a lot of that going on, a lot of that building, you, you talked about the common good. Um, but, you know, I mean, it would have been very easy for, for you and, and, and the folks in the command and, and in the units there to just, these are the enemy period, end of story, destroy, destroy, destroy. Right. Uh, especially having lost, uh, you know, comrades in, in arms there. Um, but having that level, as you mentioned, of empathy and insight and, and, and thinking uh, in that next level, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's really that's really special because like, when we're talking about the quadrants, you mentioned the, the kind of the chaotic where the, uh, when, when there's a power vacuum, somebody's going to fill it. And that's, that's a lot of kind of what happens in those situations, right, is there's a power vacuum. It gets filled by somebody who has mm-hmm. ill intent. And, and that's how we get, quote, insurgent groups, because they think they're doing the right thing. They think they're looking out for, for their best interest. And that's not necessarily the case. And being able to bridge that gap, there's a lot of stories about being able to bridge that gap through care, concern, and empathy for, quote, unquote, the enemy um, that, that we need to take into the workplace. Because, yeah you're in a much more extreme environment in, in the mountains. Yes. Bullets are flying. All of that good stuff is happening. Yes. But there are parallels to the modern workplace. It just may be, you know, emails and, and gossip instead of bullets and bombs. Right. Yeah. And, and you've got to, I mean, empathy, you know, understand the conditions in which your people are working, understand how they see you. You know, you know, self-awareness has two components. It's got a, an internal component, uh, your, you know, what you want in life, your goals, your expectations, your values, your triggers, etc. And it's got an external component, um, how other people perceive your values and intentions and goals, etc. And it, it's amazing how quickly those things can get out of whack uh, where you see yourself one way as a leader, but your people see you totally different. And, and that is going to impede your ability to get anything done. Um, so, so 
it's why empathy is so, so vital. You know, empathy just simply means to be able to um, understand another person's point of view, how they see things, how they feel about things. It is not sympathy. You know, sympathy is about pity. Um, empathy is about understanding. And, and so understanding our, our customers, um, understanding our, our employees and how they, how they view us, how they view the company um, is really important for, uh, for you to be able to gain buy-in. You know, I think buy-in is a, is a result of three things. Um, it's like a th- three-legged stool. Uh, so you've got uh, clarity. You know, people have to be clear about what they're buying into. Uh, so clarity about your common good. Um, enlightened self-interest. So people have to see themselves as better off. Um, and then the third leg is accountability. Uh, there have to be consequences. Um, and you've got to have all three legs in place. Right. So if you have uh, clarity and and people see themselves as better off, but there's no accountability, then you're just going to get backsliding um, and an inconsistent performance. If you have um, clarity and you have accountability, but people don't see themselves as better off, then you're back into this compliance environment where people are just going to do what they're told. They're going to do what's going to get them the carrot, what's going to avoid the stick, but they're never going to give you their discretionary effort. And then finally, if you've got, uh, you know, self-interest and accountability, but there's no clarity on the common good, you know, then you get fiefdoms, you know, where people uh, are just operating in their own, in their own silos and uh, not, uh, you know, not advancing the, you know, the common good of the organization. So one of the things that was vital to us um, in, in that part of Afghanistan was um, understanding the self-interest of, um, you know, of, of people, of the, of, of the, you know, people in that area and then working together with them to, you know, to, uh, you know, to advance it. And once people saw themselves as better off by working with us rather than against us, the whole thing turned. Yeah. No, I mean, again, that, that, that is, uh, solid gold. Like I, I, there, there's really nothing to add there other than we, we learn that lesson a lot, both in, in combat and in modern workplaces. And I think a lot of it boils down to, and this, this is my opinion. I'm, I'm really kind of curious to hear what your take is on this, uh, is you, you talk about the common good and communicating it. But I think that is the word is, is communication, right? If we're not as leaders communicating, communicating, and then when we think we're done communicating, we start communicating some more to, to get that clear message out there. We're kind of setting ourselves up for, for that level of, of kind of failure. Because uh, as you mentioned, you know, the, the power vacuums there, well, there, there's knowledge vacuums too, right? And if we're not filling it in, we're leaving room for for rumors and misinformation to, to get plugged in to help create that kind of fiefdom because we get misperceptions and misconceptions about what it is that we're supposed to be doing as an organization. And, and we just, we just really need as leaders to communicate, 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 and then communicate some more. Right. Well, the, one of the best ways to do that is to add the two words so that. Right. I like that. Um, and 
if 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 you want accountability and if you want people to be clear on what you what you your expectations and then let them uh you know amaze you with their ingenuity you know the simple formula is you know who plus what plus so that plus when so who plus what plus why plus you know plus when um so who's responsible what you want them to do and then the key part so that you get these results and outcomes and and then you know when do you want it by so when when you add the so that I want you to do this so that we get these results and these outcomes. Then people see the big picture. You know, then people understand the why behind the what. And it gives them the ability to, to provide their discretionary effort, to use their judgment, to figure out how um, to get the results that you want. So, you know, leaders will say, well, I need to communicate. And that means they're, they're babbling constantly. You don't need to do that. You need to add precision to your communication. And the best way to do that is by adding two words. So that. Yeah, no, that is, that is solid gold. I, I love that. That is, that is key. That is, that is key. I, I like that a lot. Um, yeah. And, and uh, this has just been <laughs> a fantastic discussion so far. And, and, and listeners, I just want to kind of reinforce, you know, we haven't referenced the book directly a lot here, but you're going to find a lot of this type of, of examples, a lot of this type of discussion in leadership, the warrior's art. Uh, we're on second edition now. Uh, but you know, there's, there's 22 chapters. Yeah. 22 chapters, Mm-hmm. of insight and examples, just like the conversation we've been having here for the last uh, 40 plus minutes. And, um, you know, Chris, I, I just, I th- thank you for, um, you know, writing, updating, pulling together the collaborators to, to have this book out there on bookshelves because it's so valuable. There's so many great lessons in here. There's so many great lessons from history and as I say, when I'm talking about some of these historical examples, I just hope that one day we start taking these lessons to heart and we stop making the same mistakes that, that our forebearers have. But until yeah, that day, there's folks yeah. like us to keep reminding us, right? Well, I think the best way to learn about leadership, to study leadership is, is you've got to have three, three perspectives, you know, theory, history, and experience. So T-H-E. Um, and, and that's exactly the way I organize this book. Uh, there's, a, there's a section on theory and philosophy. There's a section on the history of great leaders and organizations, and then one on contemporary experience. And, and again, you've got to have all three. So if you have theory and history, but it's not grounded in practical experience, then you know, you're, you're getting ivory tower solutions. Um, and you know, that, that work well in theory, but don't work well in a real world. You know, it's kind of like making breakfast with a chocolate frying pan. It's just, uh, it's just going to create a mess. <laughs> um, if you have uh, history and experience, but you've got no theory, um, then you're always playing small ball. You know, you're like the, you're like the person who plays chess one move at a time. And if you are up against somebody who knows the queen's gambit, for instance, where you lose royally every single time. So you're just going to, you'd be stuck in a tactical hamster wheel. Right. Um, and then finally, if you have uh, theory and experience, but you've got no history, then, then you lack perspective. You know, you lack uh, the perspective that, you know, actually we've tried this before. 
and it doesn't necessarily work. We've, you know, this, the reason why these principles are the way they are because they are timeless. So you might want to invent new stuff, but guess what? Um, there's stuff that's been around for 3000 years that has worked pretty well for 3000 years is probably a really, really good reason why. Um, so when you've got all three, then what you're doing is you're, you're building your, 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 uh, leadership capital. Um, you're able to, uh, build your, you know, your knowledge as a leader and then be able to apply that in the real world. And that's, you know, that's the magic. That's why I put together the book the way that, that we did. I'm thrilled that I think 60 some odd thousand people are using it for their leader development programs. People took it with them into combat and, um, you know, the book came out in 2001 originally. And in 2021, I was talking to the publisher and we said, Hey, you know, some things have changed since 2001. Why don't we do an update? You know, cause we've had the wars, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had the repeal of don't ask, don't tell. We've had the end of the combat exclusion. So all branches of all services and all jobs in the military are open to women. Uh, and, and so you know, there's some serious adapting that the military is doing now that we're recovering from these wars, um, you know, with these, with these changes, we thought it was really, really important to introduce some new, to update the book and, and also to introduce some new chapters that deal with some of these new issues. Um, and so, you know, part of the reason why it's, it's grown from 19 to 22 chapters is, um, you know, is, is for that reason. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, no, and I think those chapters were were very critical ads. And again, though, those are things that those are those are things that that history had solved at one point in time. You know, the you, you mentioned the don't ask, don't tell. You know, there's uh, a lot of historical perspective to show that that the Spartans were uh, were, were very okay with um, what we would term in today's uh, terminology as is homosexual. Uh, relationships with with their soldiers, um, we we solved that and it worked out fairly well for the Spartans. And you know, so again, it's just another historical example where if you don't understand history and you don't understand that we've already come to grips with some of these things, that uh, we're just going to make those same mistakes over and over. And and again, I love that you updated and you did include those things because those are very very important pieces to to discuss and for leaders across all stripes to to take to heart. Um, you know, the other point that the, you know, I, I make in the, in the book and I'd like to sort of foot stomp it here, um, go for it. two of them. The first of all, the first one is that there is, there's really no such thing about mil as military leadership. Right. So I just let that sink in. There's no such thing as military leadership. There is just leadership and it's applied in different contexts. Um, and leadership really is about inspiring people to contribute their best to your team's success. And every bit of that is vital. You know, leadership is about inspiration. It's not about coercion. Um, you were, and you're in, it, by the inspiration, I mean, people do things voluntarily. I don't mean the rah, rah cheerleader kind of inspiration. I mean, um, you know, people have so much buy-in that they, um, will do things. They will, they will advance the common good voluntarily. Um, and you, you're inspiring them to contribute their best um, and most authentic selves. You know, 
people shouldn't have to hide who they are at work. We expect people to be on their best behavior. Um, but, uh, you know, people shouldn't have to try to become somebody that they're not just to fit in. Um, and, and then you do that for a, for a broader purpose, uh, for the, you know, for the organization, for the team, for the mission success. So that's what leadership's all about. Yes. No, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I love that you made that distinction there, you know, cause I've made that about, you know, uh, women's leadership, right? There, it's, there's just leadership, um, it's just we, we view women a little bit differently for some reason, and we got to fix that. But no, I love it. I'm glad you made that that statement there. So thank you for that. Um, and, you know, I, I got to ask because, you know, I'll extend you the same courtesy. I extend all of my uh, my guests here and maybe that was it. But, you know, we, we've been talking here for a little over 45 minutes here and it's been fantastic conversation. Uh, I really hate to cut this thing short because I think you and I could probably talk for another week here on this and, and uh, keep going very easily. but. Um, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you want to leave listeners with before we get out of here? I guess the only other thing I, I would, I would add is that, and this goes back to the idea of responsibility. Um, you know, as somebody who led a group of 800 paratroopers in the mountains of Afghanistan, you know, I've always felt, um, you know, I, that sense of responsibility never goes away just because you took off the uniform, uh, even though it's been 15 years. And, and, and so, you know, this is 15 year anniversary of the deployment and I wanted to do something, um, significant to honor the service and sacrifice of these six uh, paratroopers that we lost, um, killed in action in, in, uh, that deployment. And, um, the way they're buried, Chris Pfeiffer is, uh, buried in, uh, Spalding, Nebraska. Adrian Hike in Carroll, Iowa, Jacob Lowell in Elwood, Illinois, Ryan Fritchie uh, buried just outside of Indianapolis, Dave Boris's final resting place is in Eastern Pennsylvania, and uh, Tom Bostick is uh, in Arlington National Cemetery. So if you connect the dots, it's about 1,700 miles. And, You know, I, I thought, yeah, I could I could drive the distance, but that just wouldn't be substantial enough. Um, I didn't think I could walk it. I'm physically capable of walking it, but it just take way too long. I still gotta, I still got to like, you know, earn a living, put food on the table. So I was like, I know what I can do. I can ride a bicycle. I can ride a bicycle 1700 miles. And and so I uh, I had ridden a bicycle in 20 years, didn't own a bike. Um, and so about 18 months before we started, I was like, all right, if I'm, I ain't getting any younger. If I'm going to do it, need to do it now. So I bought a road bike. I hired a cycling coach to get my butt in shape. And then I started telling people, so I don't chicken out. Um, and, and so we're the, the ride was to honor the fallen and also to raise support for the 800, uh, surviving paratroopers and their families, uh, who need help. And, and so I just completed that ride about two weeks ago, uh, 1700 miles. It was, it was quite an endeavor and, uh, you can read, a, read about it and, uh, just learn about the, um, the mission at, uh, uh the website is honorride.us uh, or the Sabre six foundation. Um, we've got, uh, you know, we lose 22 veterans a day to suicide. Yeah. Uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, over 7,000 were killed. In those wars, service members were killed. In that same period of time, we've lost over 30,000 veterans to suicide. 
within my own group of 800, we've lost um, more to suicide and overdoses than we had to uh, enemy fire. Uh, we just lost another one to suicide uh, a month ago. Mm. And um, I can't know that this is happening to people who had my back in Afghanistan for 15 months and not try to do something about it. Uh, so that's why we set up the Sabre Six Foundation, went on the honor ride as a way to support the living um, and um, help people find the, you know, the new purpose and belonging that uh, so they believe that they, you know, that they, they come to the belief that their lives are worth living and their impact is worth making. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's sobering stuff there. And, and, and uh, we'll make sure that those links get into the show notes so folks can, can catch up and educate themselves on, on those websites and what they can do, how they can help. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just touched on a lot there and then tugged on all my heartstrings for a lot of different, a lot of different reasons. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, and, and thank you for doing it, you know, cause that is a, a cause that's very near and dear to my heart, the veteran suicide epidemic. Mm, um, right. and, and we got to do something, we got to do better. And, you know, just, just for clarification, right. Cause I know during the, you know, presidential cycle a, a couple of times ago, that was kind of a hot button topic that, that number there, right? that includes basically all veterans, right? We're still right. losing to this day, Vietnam veterans to the suicide epidemic. That's, that's uh, exactly right. And, and that's, it's, man, it's, it's just gut wrenching. Like I hear those stats and I know them cold, but when I hear them, it just rips my heart out every single time. Cause yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, for our paratroopers that, you know, who served 15 years ago, um, you know, there's this very dangerous combination of post-traumatic stress, midlife crisis, and um, this feeling of drift where you've got no purpose and belonging, this feeling of emptiness. And when you combine those things, it puts people at a very high risk of harm. Um, yeah. and, and so that's what we're trying to address. Yeah, no, it's, it's a valuable, valuable mission there. And, and, uh, again, thank you for, for continuing, uh, to, to think about everyone, you know, that, that shows the, the kernel in you, that shows the leader in you, uh, that shows the humanity in you. So, so thank you for that. Um, so, so Chris, people want to find out more about you, want to find out more about what you do, uh, find out more about the, the leadership, the warrior's art, um, where, where's a great place for them to go to find out more about you? Uh, you can go to our website, uh, strategicleadersacademy.com. And, and then you'll see all the, you know, all the ways that I help, uh, leaders build lives of significance. Um, and, and where you can get the books, you know, the books, uh, leadership, the warriors art and zero sum victory, what we're getting wrong about war. You can find at any place great books are sold. Um, so online in bookstores, um, et cetera. And if, okay. and if you want to look, learn more about the honor ride, um, and the Sabre six foundation, go to honorride.us or, uh, Sabre six foundation.com. Outstanding. Those will all get in the show notes and folks, I highly encourage you to click those and, and find out more about all, uh, all of that going on and how you can can help, how you can learn more, how you can grow yourself as a leader. Uh, a lot of valuable links there that are going to be in the show notes. Um, Chris, again, thank you very much. 
This has been a great conversation. You've been an outstanding guest here on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I love everything you're doing. I love everything that you're you're going to keep doing. I love the mission track that you're on here. And just thank you very much for your time and being with me and my listeners uh, today. Thanks, Earl. It's been an absolute delight being on your program. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing to help leaders get good at getting better. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Electricast.